This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. My guest today is Sophie Garde Tomle, who is currently the Chief of Humanitarian Leadership Strengthening Section in Geneva. Sophie, a huge welcome to you today. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Ruth. What are you currently doing in the leadership and strengthening section? Thank you. So I have a background in humanitarian affairs. I've worked on humanitarian operational coordination for many years, 15, 16, 17 years, um, mostly in West and Central Africa and some in, in East Africa as well. And I have recently joined the, the office here in Geneva where I work on humanitarian leadership and where we provide a lot of support to our uh, humanitarian leaders around the world in charge of running some of the biggest, uh, the, the humanitarian operations and some of the biggest crises that we have in the world. And so supporting the emergency relief coordinator in, um, in providing that oversight and, uh, and support and assistance to our humanitarian coordinators to ensure that our operations are as effective uh, and far-reaching as uh, as they can be, given the resources and the and the very often very complicated environments that we're working in. Where else have you worked? The very beginning of my career, I worked with UNESCO for a while, where I worked a lot on uh, culture of peace and different um, different uh, sort of multicultural contexts and theories. And I have worked in shipping, and I have worked with the UN's Department of Political Affairs as well. Um, and but my the the vast majority of what I've done has really been in humanitarian coordination in Geneva, New York, and uh, in Africa. And how did you end up working in the humanitarian aid sector? Yeah, it's a good question. It does feel a little bit sometimes like a coincidence, to be completely honest, because my background is in literature. I studied literature, comparative literature. It's my it's my passion. It's the, an area that I find is extremely important for for all of us and everything that we do. And so from when I finished my uh, my thesis, I was living in Conakry in Guinea in West Africa. And I went to the UNESCO country office in Conakry and I asked if I could have an internship. And the representative who was there was away and they said, but come back another day. So I came back another day and they said, she's still away. Can you come back another day? And I went back. And for the third time I came in, I sat down on the couch and I said, is it okay if I just sit here and wait till she comes back? And she did. And I think she was impressed with the persistence or something because she did offer me an unpaid internship, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and uh, and I, worked with, uh, I worked with her for a while. And that's how I then got in touch with Ocha and started working on humanitarian coordination. Right. And from your perspective, what is a humanitarian crisis? So I find it's a very good question. Um, 
I think it is, from my perspective, it is a situation where human beings are put, and, and, and usually uh, a certain amount of human beings are put in a crisis where they, they require some assistance from outside and, 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 uh, and, and have uh, just very basic needs for survival or for protection that humanity uh, steps up to help them with. Um, so it could be, of course, all, all, for all kinds of reasons, but usually uh, we do like to sort of link it with either conflicts or natural disasters. But I think there's a lot of elasticity in the in the term, to be honest. I think we have a little bit of a tendency to just see the big crises as humanitarians, in uh, at least within OCHA or within the UN Secretariat. But I think for other organizations like the Red Cross or the Red Crescent, um, that goes much further. And for, for most governments, uh, localized floods can create a crisis um, that can that can generate needs at in that area. So um, I think that's the but the some of the defining factors are on on what those humanitarian needs are and and what kind of support is required. Yeah, and you know one of the other questions I like to ask uh, humanitarian practitioners is around this qu this question of poverty. You know, uh, in many of the countries where we work, um, people who have not been affected by a shock as such, you know, by a conflict or a flood, are really living in conditions similar to those that are affected by conflict. Should we also be assisting these kinds of uh, communities? So I think, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of debate around this and it's good that we continue to have, have that. And I think overall, the world is moving in a direction where the threshold for what is acceptable in terms of human suffering, regardless, regardless of what the causes are, is lower and lower, thankfully, which means that we're, we're, we're more easily moved to do something for people in crisis. Um, but I also think that it's, uh, it's, it's humanitarian response is not always the most useful or appropriate, uh, you know, uh, intervention. You would sometimes you actually, you, you do need other types of, uh, of response to the situation. And then I think, you know, going back to maybe the question of what, what defines a humanitarian crisis and, and my work now, I, I really see a link with leadership when you don't have the right leadership in terms of of development, economy, and security, and so forth. This is sometimes what happens, and so, but it might be a, it might not be a humanitarian response that's the the most appropriate tool. Right, and what do you see as the causes of uh, humanitarian crisis today? I I I I do tend to see. Um, I, I mean, certainly, definitely conflict and sort of lack of ability internationally to, uh, to, to find solutions that are peaceful rather than uh, going down sort of a military road. Um, but I also think it has to do with um, development. We're not, you know, when the, the, we're not in all countries able to respond appropriately to the needs of the populations. And that really does, is very closely linked to development and, uh, and that type of leadership that's required and governance and, 
and of course also resources that's all linked right right and um tell me one action that could be done to reduce human human suffering to reduce or to stop the causes of humanitarian crisis i think we're um in some ways i think if you look at sort of over the past let's say you know let's say maybe since the un was created or so i know you know if you look at sort of the just those last 70 75 years now i think that there is a um i think that if we had a bit more confidence that we could prevent these crises if we had a, a bit more uh, courage to say men made conflicts or man-made emergencies aren't uh, aren't necessary because there are ways to resolve things differently. I think we've become much, much better at that. I think as the, the world has become much better at doing that. Um, but I think sometimes we we uh, we forget that or we it becomes hopeless or it becomes very complex or it becomes very difficult and we sort of we content ourselves with uh, with what's a very um, an inappropriate, you know, look at look at some of the conflicts we have around the world today, which really shouldn't be going on for that long, but but are because no one because we aren't able to as a world come together and say this should really be handled differently. So for I want you know, so for me it really has to do with it 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 has to do with the courage and has to do with leadership and has to sort of do with not con we know today that we can prevent famines. We know that we can uh, there are lots of uh, epidemic outbreaks that we can prevent. We know that we uh, we you know, we're still of course right now for example faced with the coronavirus or you know, pandemic but we also have a lot of tools and know-how and knowledge on how to deal with this compared to 70 years ago. It's a completely different place. We're in a completely different place. And so building on all of that, but making sure that we take it further and do much more to prevent these crises, I think would really help in reducing humanitarian needs around the world. Yeah, and I'm glad you talk about um, leadership and courage and the will because um, in many ways, um, you know, I tend to think that the causes of the crisis uh, derive from political failures, certainly when it comes to conflict. Um, but linked to this, um, I do want to hear, you know, like, crises are increasing. Um, the number of people is on the increase every year. And the projections indicate unless something is done, there's going to be more people in need of humanitarian assistance. And so I'm interested to think, you know, to hear from you when you're advocating so hard, when you think you, you believe, you know, you know what our leadership needs to do and it's not happening. How do you cope with that? I think we have, yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, maybe it's part of being an eternal optimist or, but maybe it's also wanting to, um, you know, it's about reminding everyone that we're all human beings and that, if we can see eye to eye with other people around us, we can we can address the the discrimination and the fear and the and the you know all those factors that that led us allow these crises to go on. I think I you know that's why I think we can't give up. We have to continue to advocate because it is possible to prevent uh, conflicts and it is possible to do more to better anticipate natural disasters, disease outbreaks, 
know, we're saying we're only going to see more and more of these types of, of pandemics. Um, and we are seeing an increase in the number of conflicts, but we are also seeing an ability to resolve conflicts that we didn't have before. For example, because we have more women around the table, it's still only very few, but we have more women. We have much more diverse a, a group of people involved in, in peace negotiations than we had in the past, for example. And so if we start seeing each other, seeing more eye to eye and seeing uh, humanity uh, at, in that lens, I think we should be able, I, I'm, that's my hope. And, and that's my hope. What, this is what I hope that we can continue to advocate for and, we, and induce that belief that it is possible and remembering and, and articulating all of the times that we have been able to prevent crises and that it is it is possible to do so. Do you think there's a role for stories, for fiction to help? I, I think storytelling and literature and fiction is sometimes even more central in driving those key messages through than anything we can ever do in politics, in humanitarian affairs, in, 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 uh, in news stories, because it provides a whole different level of insight and it allows you to go to, to you know, it's like you, you go into the head of someone else and you see the world from that person's perspective. You experience feelings, emotions, stories, you understand connections between people and see the world uh, in a different way that you can only do through stories and, and, and fiction. And I think that's a, a, an extremely powerful force in, uh, in connecting people and in, in preventing conflicts or, uh, or, you know, driving that type of advocacy and belief that it's possible to do so. Right. And uh, can you tell me a book that you've read that was set in a humanitarian crisis that did that? Yes, I would love, love, love to share with you. Um, and I would strongly encourage uh, everybody to read this. It's a book called, what I'd like to, to, to tell you about is a book called Allah n'est pas obligé, or Allah is not uh, obliged. It's written by uh, Amadou Kuruma, who's a writer from... Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa. He, uh, he issued this book in, uh, in the year 2000, so right on the, at the millennium. And uh, it's 20 years ago today, but it's, uh, for me, it's a significant contribution to the conversation around how do we connect with other people who don't necessarily have the same language or background or worldview that we have. Um, but who, uh, but but he sort of opens the hope and the space for us to um, to understand how uh, you know, and some you can say how the other thinks, or but it is about someone from a different background than yourself, how that person uh, thinks, and it's uh, if I you know I just wanted to to explain the way he does that is that so it, the book is about a um, a boy who uh who is he he grows up in that sort of uh, malinke area of Cote d'Ivoire Guinea and uh Sierra Leone and Liberia and he he gets involved in the he loses his parents and he gets involved in the in the war 
and he travels around the, the, the conflict area in the Manor River Union. And when he meets someone, he has these uh, three dictionaries that he pulls out. So he's able to, and he does this throughout the book, he, he translates for the reader the uh, different words or cultures or perspectives that you could have from the either the anglophone part of that region or from the francophone part of the region or from the uh, the the um, the French from France because he makes a big distinction between the French spoken in France and the French spoken in that region which he in some ways was the person who coined Amadou Kuruma when he wrote Les Soleils des Indépendances. Um, he he essentially sort of established francophone uh, uh, literature in that region, in that language. Um, but so it's an incredibly moving book, and he uh, and he he opens for that possibility for us to connect with other people, which also then allows I think us to 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 push back on discrimination and the the, the sort of perception that you know, people are very different and we have so many things, uh, so many differences. And instead he focuses on what we have in common. I haven't read that book and I'm hoping I'm going to add it on my ever growing list uh, of books to read. Um, and you bring out um, something through this book around connecting with the other that you don't know and the question of empathy, because one of the things I'm also always um, personally trying to understand what drives empathy and how can we be empathetic and feel for people that we don't know, that we've never met, which happens at least uh, when it comes to people affected by humanitarian crisis. Sometimes we don't know them. So can you tell me a little bit more about how the book does this? Right. I think, I mean, part of it is that it's the way it's told is that you, you um, it's told through the eyes of a child. So he's a, he's a non-threatening and non-authoritative uh, figure, but he brings you along as a reader into his universe and his world and how he sees things. And, and it's a very, um, you know, which is very different than an adult where you would have a, um, a perspective which is much more is the person good or bad there's no judgment in the same way from, from and I think my sense is that this is specifically why Amadou Kuruma cho chose to, to this format of using a child uh, a child's voice which is of course a, a sort of a, a um, an old literary trick if you like to to tell the story of any situation through the eyes of a child, but I think it really it it really works. And he uh, because you can only feel sympathy for the boy, even though he does some horrible things, and he comes from a you know he goes through these very challenging and difficult uh, uh, situations. What was the boy's story? So he is um, he he so he grew up in this area, and his. Um, he never he didn't get to know his father and his mother was a um was lost her had an ulcer and lost her one of her legs so she was crawling around on her hands and her and her the other leg but um and had a very difficult uh, had you know had a had a very difficult life and so he he tells the story of his his background where she's, you know, 
she's not particularly kind or, or nice to him, but she's also doing all she can. And he has this angle on it where, of course, he loves his mother, um, but it's also clear that she was struggling in the situation she was. And he got, you know, there's one time, for example, when he had just learned to crawl uh, and he was just a baby and she was coming after him because she was upset about something and she chased him and she was actually faster crawling than he was crawling and he ran right into a fire and burned his hands. And so it's a terrible, uh, it's a terrible story, but it's one of, it's a it's it's a lot about the the circumstances that they're in and you and you create i think you know you were talking about the empathy i think there's a there's a there's a way of uh, it's all it is about that human connection and how much he he misses his mother but he also knows that it's a it's a background and so forth that's marked him and has has shaped him and formed him right anything else you'd like to say about this book I would maybe say, I mean, I, I mentioned very briefly that Amadou Kouroma also wrote the Les Soleils des Indépendances. I, I, uh, I had the honor and the pleasure of meeting him actually when I was working at that UNESCO uh, office in Conakry. And I also went to visit him in, uh, in, in Côte d'Ivoire. And I would really, I would really encourage you and, and everyone else. I know that Les Soleils des Indépendances is on the, is one of those books that you always read in school in, uh, in, in most of West Africa because it was such a foundational book for creating uh, literature, written, the written literature in that, in that region. Uh, but I would really encourage you to read it. He's an amazing author and, uh, and, uh, and is really, uh, is, is, a, is a, such a, um, so so much ahead of his time. It took him 13 years to get uh, Les Soleils des Indépendances issued because everyone kept saying, but it's not proper French. It's not the way the French should be written. This is not how French is because you know how French is such a constructed language. But he managed to get it out and have it published in with a lot of uh, uh, both local languages and and. Uh, and explanations and so forth in there from the from the region and from the background that he's from. So tell me about a person or a situation you have encountered in your work um, that has had a profound effect on you and why? So, um, yeah, that's a good question. I think probably one of the most uh, profound humanitarian experiences I've had was in 2017 when we um when when we in January 2017 realized that the analysis that we had indicated that there was a renewed risk of famine in Somalia so this was only 6 years after the famine in 2011 where 250,000 people died and I have never seen, I mean, we were speaking of, of leadership and, uh, and, you know, of course that has a lot to do with the, the, the mobilization and how we were able to, to work together. And, but seeing the whole world come together at that time and, uh, and collectively respond to prevent a famine in Somalia was uh, unbelievable. And I had a, and this was actually, this was after a famine in 91 in, in, uh, in the same area. I had one, I met one family there in, in Baidoa in Southwest States 
who had walked, we, this was at the hospital uh, of the International Committee of the Red Cross in Baidoa, and the family had just arrived. They had walked for several days through an area under the uh, control of armed groups, and it was the, the mother and the father, and they had two small children, and it was the third time the, the mother and the father were faced with a risk of famine. Um, their children were clearly not in good shape. They, uh, from, they made it to the hospital in time to save the children, but the fate, their faces and the, the fear and the, you know, the, seeing them and thinking this is the third time these people go through the risk of famine and the determination that, that, you know, that, that was there and which, you know, of course it was amazing and fantastic that we did manage to prevent a famine, but it's not like it was a great situation after all, you know, of course there were, there was so much human suffering and seeing that, but knowing that we were able to do it, um, to get there is, is for me was really, uh, is, yeah, it was, it's, it's, it, it was, I think for me it was, it was definitely, um, it's really marked me in what I what I do and what I know that uh, that I would strive for the humanitarian system as a whole and for the world to be able to how we would I would like for us to be able to deal with these type of emergencies going forward because I know that we can and I know and I you know I'm I feel that we have to and we must continue to do better and we must continue to to ensure that these people next time, it's not just a question of saving them from famine, but it's a, it's a question of making sure that they're not for a fourth time in their lives put uh, in front of a, a renewed risk of famine. What is your greatest hope for the people affected by humanitarian crises? My greatest hope is that we can get there faster, we have better quality, that we better understand what, uh, what people want, and that we continue to improve on the the understanding and and that we get better at both reading uh what people need what they really want understanding it listening hearing what people uh what people most desire or how we can best help them and that we then are able to adjust the humanitarian operation accordingly so we can we can help more people uh and and in a in a way that's always as adapted as we can to what their requirements are what one action can people out there reading or listening to this interview tech to help uh the people who are affected by uh humanitarian crisis or to even address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis I think the the number one thing that we can all do, and this is, I mean, that's that's obviously not just for for humanitarians. I think we can we can listen more. We can understand where other people are coming from. We can see other people as equal human beings and understand where they're going and why. And and this is what I mean when I you know the the three dictionaries that this little boy has in Elle n'est pas obligée allows us to engage and connect with other people in a in a in a much more profound way than i find that we're doing today it's about globalization but it's also about humankind and 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 seeing eye to eye with people and listening and understanding where they're coming from and 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 understanding where we're coming from ourselves as well right 
And that was my last question for you. Um, do you have any questions for me? I hope you'll read the book. <laughs> I hope so. I am definitely um, going to put on my reading list. Plus, you know what? I haven't actually um, read that many books by French writers. So that even gives me an additional incentive. There you go. Yes. I mean, they are, I should mention, they are both uh, translated into English as well. But it's obviously fun to read it in French because of the way it's done with the with the the translations from from uh, local languages and to uh, some of it to anglophone and it talks about the you know the the francophones from here and the francophones from there and so forth so i definitely definitely recommend that and sophie thank you so much for for your time and for for sharing your stories and your perspectives on the humanitarian landscape but also on, on the stories uh, themselves thank you thank you ruth i'm so happy to uh, to be able to take part in this it's the pleasure is all mine and thank you for all the work that you're doing in this area i really appreciate it thanks a lot and i love listening to your podcast thank you to the listeners thank you so much for listening you can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band. <laughs>